Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Every angler and every avid reader knows that fishing is one of the great metaphors for life. The deceptively simple act of casting a line into water and waiting for a bite teaches us patience and humility, how to accept failure, and respect for the great mysteries of the natural world. From one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, to the old man in the sea, we've all read books about fishing, but perhaps not like the one we're talking about today. Not only is it written by a humble part-time fisherman, but one who lives and works in the big city. A college teacher and political activist by trade, he took up fishing as a way to recover his sanity during the pandemic, but found many ways in which the often tedious struggle to land a fish reflected his lifelong struggle for social justice. My guest is Stephen Duncombe. He's the author of eight books and a professor at NYU who teaches and writes on the history of media and the intersection of culture and politics. Although he spends as much time as he can on the Outer Cape, we're talking with him in New York City today via telephone about his new book, The Activist Angler. Stephen Duncombe, welcome to The Lowdown. Ah, thank you for having me, Ira. And boy, do I wish I was up in the Cape right now. Um, but I am here in New York, and this is, at least we can communicate by phone. So your official bio says that you help activists to create more like artists and artists to strategize more like activists. What exactly does that mean? Well, let me back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about my activist career, and maybe that will become clearer. Um, I've been an activist since I was about 17 or 18, and in my early 20s, I was um, an activist and helped create a community organization in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And at that time, um, Lower East Side of Manhattan was filled with artists. And so when we'd have a community meeting and we'd get together to decide what to do about saving a community garden or um, fighting against the erosion of rent control, uh, part of the people in the crowd would be artists. And so we'd say, let's have a demonstration. And an artist would say, okay, yes, but it's got to be a performance. Um, we'd say, okay, well, we're going to have a press conference. And someone would say, but how are we going to stage it? And that really caught me a lot about how art and activism can work together to be both effective, but also affective, that is, touch our hearts and minds. So about 10 or 12 years ago, I co-founded something called the Center for Artistic Activism, and we work with activists around the world, um, I think about 25 countries and a whole range of different um, issues, to try to get them to think like artists. Um, it doesn't mean make paintings. It doesn't mean uh, create music, although that can be part of it, but really to approach the business of activism with a creative mindset. Um, and I do this because I think it actually works. It works really well. And it works particularly well in our society and which is, you know, a highly mediated society of signs and stories and symbols and spectacles. So you tell us that activists, like all of us at times, get stuck in tactical ruts. Give us an example of that and how you found that it relates a lot to fishing. Yeah. 
So, um, yes, like all of us, we get stuck in our patterns, the, 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 as we call it, the march chant rally pattern of activism. Um, and, you know, at one time, marches were actually quite radical and innovative. At one time, rallies were as well. And chant can be actually quite radical and innovative. Anybody who's been to an ACT UP demonstration back in the 80s knows that. Um, but we get stuck in these patterns. And because they're patterned, um, they stop working. They become old. They become stale. As soon as people kind of know what you're doing before you even start doing it, they tune it out. And so activists, like anything else, need to constantly be innovating, constantly be thinking of new ways of doing things. Um, and what does this have to do with fishing? Well, fishing is this interesting combination of Tradition, um, knowing your favorite fishing holes, going back to spaces, places over and over and again, but also being really aware that you have to change things up as the weather changes, as the seasons change, as the wind changes, as the tides change. You constantly have to be innovating in order to catch the fish. Um, and this is something I learned when I had to reteach myself how to fish after about 40 years. I started kind of relearning all these lessons about fishing that I had abandoned when I was 13 or 14 um, during COVID and when I was spending time out in Truro, um, my house out there. Um, and I started thinking about all of these sort of lessons I was learning fishing were really applicable to the world of activism as well. And what I liked about it was that I could often talk to activists using these sort of fishing metaphors and they understood it better than if I would just you know, approach it in the abstract. As a middle-aged white guy, you tell us that when you're in a group of activists who are often of different genders, cultures, and ages, you often have to step up by stepping back. That is, shut up and listen instead of mansplaining. An important lesson for us all. How in the world do you relate that to fishing? <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good question. Um, that you know, part of that has to do with just this is the experience of uh, being an activist, being a white, straight, middle class male activist, particularly when I'm working around the world. Um, I'm usually working with younger folks. I'm usually working with non-white folks. I'm often working with um, non-straight folks. And so, one of the things I have to realize is that my experience is not necessarily the best experience. My experience is one particular experience, not a generalizable experience. And so it's really important for people like me to step back a little bit and be able to listen to other folks' experiences, partially because they are speaking to other folks who relate more to their experiences than they relate to experiences of my own. So one of the things I think a lot about when I'm you know, on Boston Beach um, and the sun is coming up is just how fortunate I am. Right. I mean, literally, and I don't mean that in sort of like, I'm fortunate, but literally I am fortunate. I am fortunate enough to be able to have a house in Cape Cod, be able to pay for a mortgage in Cape Cod, particularly in this day and age. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a job that allows me the flexibility to go fishing. And so the question is, is well, what do I do with that privilege? Um, do I feel guilty about it? 
and do nothing. Um, and I've always hated that response because I always think that guilt actually is about recentering the person who feels guilty and not helping folks out at all, except, you know, through this sort of perverse fascination back on yourself. Or do I actually figure out, well, what privileges do I have and how can I leverage them in such a way to actually try to do away with society with privilege? So in some ways, it's about reckoning what are the material circumstances that allow me to be a fisherman, allow me to be an angler, allow me to go out and have this beautiful life on Cape Cod in the summers and the weekends when I can get out there and both enjoying it, but also recognizing that it's a privilege. Um, and that really comes to the largest lesson that comes out of fishing that's useful for activism. Unless you make peace with those sorts of contradictions as an activist, you are not going to remain an activist very long. If you beat yourself up for your privilege, you're going to end up quitting because nobody likes to get beat up all the time. Um, if you don't figure out how to sort of make peace with who you are in the world, you're not going to stay an activist. What does that have to do with fishing? Fishing is really, 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 really boring. Um, 90% of the time, um, you have to learn to love the process of fishing. You can't get hung up on things working your way all the time. You can't get hung up on, I'm going to catch a fish today. Fishing just doesn't work that way. It's about recognizing who you are, what your environment is, and making peace with that and staying at staying at it day after day, even when the fish aren't biting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the surprising lessons that fishing can teach us about how to become more effective politically. My guest is Stephen Duncombe, NYU professor and co-founder of the Center for Artistic Activism. His latest book is The Activist Angler. So you write about the necessity to use new gear occasionally the new line and a uh, new rod occasionally, and you compare it to finding new ways to protest. So I'm going to ask you a question that's always puzzled me. In the beginning, people were extremely excited about Occupy Wall Street. It seemed like a completely new animal. But I wonder, was it an effective strategy in your opinion? How might it have been more effective? It's always a question. Anytime you have a new strategy, um, you always have to ask, it's great that it's new, but is it actually effective? And I think in some ways it was effective. Um, this occupation, remember, wasn't just something that happened in Ducati Park in New York. It starts out in Tahir Square um, in Egypt. It actually also is happening in public squares in Spain. And then it comes to New York and then it starts to spread around the world, this sort of occupation of public spaces. And I think in some ways they were really effective insofar as what they did is they allowed sort of a stage for which people could come and be part of and perform this new society. Um, you know, it was a place in which, for example, in Zuccotti Park, there was a library. Um, and it wasn't a really functioning library. That is, nobody, you know, really actually brought back the books they took. But in an age in which where libraries are closing down or the hours of libraries are being contracted, it was this great expression of what a public space could be. So that's the good thing that came out of it. I also think in the United States, um, it raised the idea of a society of privilege. You know, we are the 99%. Um, and it put that 
in the front burner. And it really made the space for people like Bernie Sanders to finally be heard and then made the space for a wave of progressive um, folks to actually run for office, get elected and so on. Where it failed in many ways was its lack of institutionalization, um, which is it became just a performance. And it didn't actually look beyond that performative moment for how do we institutionalize some of these uh, utopic ideals that are being expressed on the ground. Um, and maybe that's too much to ask for a protest like Occupy. But I think in Spain, for example, one of the interesting things they did was that they used that energy and put it into a political party, Podemos, which had a little, a lot of problems, but at least they tried to institutionalize it. And one of the things that happened is they got a mayor of Barcelona elected who came out of that social movement. Um, in Egypt, um, unfortunately, a very better organized social movement, the Islamic Brotherhood, was able to eclipse and go around um, the the occupiers, um, take power. And then, of course, the old Egyptian power elite and military took power from them and shunted all of those um, occupiers aside. In the U.S., I think the ideas remain. Um, the idea that society is slanted towards the privileged and away from those outside of privilege. But I think that the right wing, in some ways, has been better at institutionalizing that resentment than the left has. I love your idea of getting feedback on political actions. I've been in so many demonstrations that seemed good to the activists, but really ticked off the people we wanted to reach. I can remember once in college, <laughs> amassing 200 people to stop the cars on the New York State Thruway. Not a good idea. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted to know why we did it. They just wanted to kill us. So <laughs> how, how can we get activists to do this more often, to, to get feedback and to try to figure out if this stuff is actually going to work? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have that sort of my realization was actually in night fishing. Um, so anybody out there in the audience who does a lot of surf fishing knows that you want to catch the fish, you're going out at night. Um, I hate night fishing. I hate it. Um, I hate casting out and not being able to see where my lure lands. I hate not knowing if it's a seal, which is nudging my, uh, my lure and not some, you know, uh, striped bass or bluefish. Um, I hate getting a tangle and not being able to untangle it on the beach. Um, I hate, hate, hate night fishing. And the reason I hate it is because you're not getting the feedback that you do when you're day fishing. When you're day fishing, you can see where your lure lands. You can see how it's moving across the top of the water or swimming down under the water. Um, you can see where the birds are diving and swooping. You get all of this feedback, which makes it much easier to actually target the fish, except that the fish aren't there um, because they're coming in at night. So this is the thing that I applied to activism. Activists often get stuck in this idea of like, we're going to come up with an idea. And then what we're going to do is we're going to work and work and plan and plan for months. And then we're going to stage this big demonstration. And then maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But we're going to go home and do something else. And we're going to work, 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 work and try something else. Whereas I've been trying to work with activists to say, hey, start thinking about sketches. Activism is sketches, which is do these sort of low-key, low-stakes, 
interventions and then look around. Get some of the people in your in your group and have them be around the edges and talk to people. See what sort of meanings they're getting out of them. Have them go across the road and see what it looks like. Ira, before we began, you were telling me about a demonstration that you saw on Route 6, and you had to slow your car way down, almost cause an accident to see what they were actually demonstrating. Um, now, if those people had actually sent someone across the street or sent someone to drive by, they would have said, hey, our signs aren't big enough. Nobody understands what we're doing here. That sort of feedback is absolutely essential to have any sort of effective activism. And it happens by doing things, testing them out, getting some sort of feedback, and then creating new iteration. Um, and so I, I like to think about one of the things that we're in the business of is prototyping. And we're constantly prototyping, which creates new ways of doing things, but also feedback on those new ways so they can get better and better and better. Um, so a lot of fishermen like to photograph their catch. You tell us that <laughs> activists should not only document their actions, but think beforehand about what images might be used to their advantage long after the fact. So tell us why, especially today, this kind of Getting good visuals is especially important for political actions. Yeah. I had a friend who helped organize the protest in Seattle, um, the, uh, uh, the WTO protest in Seattle, who once said, me, said to me, um, you know, you got to think of your protest as a picture um, because it's going to end up as one. And you have to think about that how you're going to communicate your message to anybody who's not in the immediate vicinity is through some photographers taking a photo of you. And so you have to think about what sort of a, a photograph that you want to generate for the news cameras. And in some ways, it's really easy because news cameras are looking for things which are entertaining. They're looking for things that are surprising. They're looking for things that are shocking, um, which is why they always end up taking photos of those idiots burning the American flag or tipping over a, a dumpster or smashing a Starbucks window, right? Because it makes for entertaining photographs. So those are the folks that are not interested in that sort of entertainment. We have to think in terms of like, how do we create some sort of visual for an audience? Because most of what we're going to do is going to be mediated through some sort of medium, whether it be television or a video or social media, and will then be interpreted by other folks. And we don't necessarily control its context, so we have to have as much control as possible about what people see. Now, this sounds kind of creepy, right? Are you being so instrumental about your activism that you're trying to stage it? Well, guess what? This was the brilliance of the civil rights movement. Um, that famous photo of Rosa Parks sitting on the bus, and there's that white guy sitting behind her who's kind of scowling off into the distance. Um, that was a staged photo. In fact, it was staged a year after her actual protest because the civil rights movement understood that outside of the people at that moment, which would have been chaos and very hostile, they had to communicate what their struggle was about and the dignity of the people doing the struggle to a global audience or they wouldn't be able to win. Um, so this is a very old tactic, um, but it takes on more resonance now in which we live in a much more mediated universe.
If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about fishing and the art of political activism. My guest is Stephen Duncan, an author, professor, activist, and occasionally successful fisherman. His latest book is The Activist Angler. So here, why don't you fish on a boat? Is it is it like you don't have a friend with a boat? I wouldn't buy a boat for anything, but I have friends with boats. Ira, that is, and if anybody's listening out there, what I need is a friend with a boat. A friend okay? with a boat. Okay. I, I, I need a friend with a boat. I would love to fish on uh, on a boat. Um, although I will say, one of the things I really enjoyed during COVID is fishing alone. I have my fishing buddies out in Cape Cod. We actually have a little listserv about what's biting where, and we see each other. But one of the things I truly love about fishing is that moment and time to be by myself. Um, and again, you know, what does that have to do with activism? Um, activism, when it works, is a social process. Um, things don't change because of a singular great leader. They change because people organize together and work together. Um, they change because people are out on the street together. They change because people are in meetings. Um, they change because people are engaged in social endeavors. Um, but that gets really exhausting. And so one of the things I learned as an activist and then relearned as a, as a angler is to make time for myself, is to make time for kind of self-preservation, um, take time for self-care. Um, I meet a lot of young activists nowadays who are, because I teach at a college, right? And they're incredibly gung-ho. They want to sacrifice everything for the cause. And I'll often say, hey, look, we don't need you to sacrifice everything for two years. We need you to actually figure out how to make this practice a part of a sustainable life for the next 60 years, because that's how long social change is going to take. There's that famous quote of Martin Luther King, which said goes something like, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. You know, and people, it's a beautiful quote, as so much of what King says is beautiful. But what people forget about that quote is that long part. The arc of history is really long and the arc of social change is really long. And you've got to figure out how to be in it for the long game. If you just go in, you know, gung ho, don't take care of yourself. Um, you're going to burn out. You know, just like if you go fishing the first day, expecting you're going to catch some fish, you are going to quit fishing. Um, you got to show up day after day, day after day, which means making the process nice for yourself. In your chapter on snarls, you talk about the need to untangle. Fair enough. But how do you deal with trying to reach consensus in a meeting? How in the world do you do that without wanting to throw yourself across the room and strangle people? <laughs> I've come very close. Um, you know, I think consensus is a goal, but I think any organization that weds itself to absolute consensus is also wedding itself to the tyranny of the minority. And that's just my personal feeling, right? Is that actually, I think it's really important um, to believe in the will of the majority and that sometimes things aren't going to go your way, um, including when that will of the majority goes against your way. 
Um, that chapter on snarls, the point I was making is that sometimes it's really important to work on those snarls, right? Um, to try to find that little knot at the center of all the other knots, that if you finally spring it, you know, your line's going to unfold and you can get back to fishing. Um, and sometimes it's really important to work on like consensus or to work on internal problems of an organization. But I've been an activist long enough to know that sometimes that what ends up happening is you spend so much time on the internal stuff that you stop doing the external stuff, which is the activism, which is engaged in changing the world. And it just becomes about the organization and it just becomes personalities. And so sometimes when you're fishing, you just got to get out the knife and cut the knot out and just re-string your, you know, your rod and get back to fishing and just get rid of that knot, stick it in your pocket, um, throw it out later. But sometimes you just got to cut the line and restring. Um, just like sometimes you just have to say, you know what, we're not going to reach consensus. That's okay. And let's move on. Have you ever been afraid in a demonstration like that you're going to get physically hurt? Yeah. Oh, and I have been physically hurt for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to ask you further, but they were, they were cops and it was dangerous and they were. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's no, what I've stops been beaten. Yeah. My fingers twisted. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 if you do street demonstrations for long enough, you will get some unhinged police officer who's working out their aggressions, um, and they themselves feel threatened, and some bad stuff will happen. I've also been in riots where it, people on ostensibly our side who are making me really scared. Do you get involved in politics when you're down here um, on the Outer Cape? Because some groups could use your expertise. Well, you know, yeah. I am looking forward to retiring, and part of my retirement will be getting involved in local politics in that way. And, you know, I do in my small ways. Um, one of the things that's been really upsetting me about the Cape, and this has changed in the 12 years since we bought a house there, is the proliferation of private property signs, or this, my beach is private property, no trespassing. These, this, when I moved here, 12 years ago. And also, you know, I used to go to Cape Cod. I grew up on the um, Connecticut shoreline. So we would go to Cape Cod. I never remember those signs. Um, and of course, I routinely ignore them. But sometimes you have to do a little bit more than ignoring them, if you know what I mean. So some of my uh, political activism has been engaged in a very local and, um, how should we say, engaged manner. Huh. So what's the biggest fish you've ever caught? No lies here. <laughs> the biggest fish I ever caught, um, I'd say a 40-inch striped bass. And of you, course, you it, always it catch and release, yeah. 34 inches or 32 inches, <laughs> but no, <laughs> it, was, it was big enough, so I had to let it go. Uh, do you, so, but you always catch and release. That that is your that's your that's your that's your mo. You always catch and release. No, I catch and eat. <laughs> I can um, and catch and release in the times that I I can't. So when I'm in New York, I always catch and release. Um, when I'm fishing for um, freshwater bass in Cape Cod, I'm always catching and releasing. And when I'm fishing for schoolies, I'm always catching and releasing. But when I go to the beach at night, I want to catch a striped bass that I'm going to bring home or a bluefish that I'm going to bring home. Or in, I was just up a couple weeks ago, they just stocked the ponds with, uh, with trout. And me and my friend, uh, Ibu from Senegal, we went out fishing together and we had a brilliant trout dinner. Huh. So what is the 
political action that you are most proud of in in your career? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's this action that we did in North Macedonia, um, which at that time, which is a, 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 a nation in the Western Balkans, a small nation in the Western Balkans, and it's a, it was formerly part of Yugoslavia. And in fact, um, at that time, this was 10 years ago, it was referred to as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia because the Greeks um, would not allow them to call themselves Macedonia. And of course, people hated that in Macedonia. In any case, we were asked to work there um, by an LGBTQ um, organization. And Macedonia at that time was run by a nationalist right-wing government and who had spent all of their money building these hideous statues every place. Um, and it was a very hostile place to be queer. Um, three weeks before we had arrived, this group had had their offices ransacked um, by thugs. Um, so they were very embattled. They couldn't have any demonstrations because immediately they would get beaten up by thugs. Um, and so we did our training with them about course about three or four days. And what we always do at the end of the training is in 24 hours, we brainstorm, we build the props for, we stage, and then we reflect upon an action. It's sort of like a training action. And when we first sat down and said, what do you want to do? Their first response was to be angry at the people that were angry at them and basically push them away like they had been pushed away. And we talked about that and said, this is a really natural response. You know, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Um, and said, but one of the problems you're facing that you've talked to us about is that you are being excluded from this nation by these nationalists who are saying to be queer is to not be Macedonian that you are the outsiders, even though you lived here your entire lives. So let's not do that and let's come up with something else. And what we came up with was to, instead of protest against the Macedonia that they didn't like, they protested for or did a demonstration of a Macedonia that they did want to create. And they called it the future republic of the former Republic of Macedonia. <laughs> and in an afternoon in a main park in Skopje, the capital city of Macedonia, they built a queer utopia. And it had a, uh, a frontier. It had a guard. We created a new passport that instead of checking male or female, there was like a scatter plot and uh and an axes um and it was all done in pencil so you could erase it and we had um games we had music we had food we had big banners that said come talk to your fellow queer macedonian come talk to your fellow roma macedonian because they were also being oppressed um and at the center of it there was a pedestal but instead of having some Greek god on a pedestal, which is what all of these uh, statues around Skopje, these new statues were of, um, everyday people got up, climbed up the back of the, um, of, the, of the podium and got on the podium and held a sign saying, I am a hero or heroine. And they would write in their names or they would say their profession. And it was all about the, the everyday people of Macedonia. Okay, we're going to have to leave it right there. But that was absolutely beautiful. My guest today has been Stephen Duncombe, NYU professor and co-founder of the Center for Artistic Activism. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Activist Angler has been released not just about this past year by OR Books. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on catching fish and changing the world one interview at a time. Bye for now. <laughs>